Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another Marvel Fanfare Friday here on Exes for Podcast, where we take a look at different corners of the Marvel Universe, and we are so excited today to add coverage of two of Marvel's most classic stable. We're going to be taking a look at stories featuring Spider-Man and She-Hulk. While this is certainly not the first time either of these characters have appeared on our show it is the first time we are intentionally expanding our coverage to feature these characters in specific and we could not be more excited kicking things off is She-Hulk number one and this title is the absolute definition of as contributor Jake says in this next segment a trustworthy first issue the creative team sought out to create a world for Jen to thrive despite her current shortcomings and the obstacles holding her down. It's a really powerful narrative that at one point we talk about theoretically a lot of the beats could be done in a short form because the story itself is so classic. It's about Jen seeking home and comfort yet they manage to expand it in a way where no panel feels wasted. It's and you know obviously we're a podcast it's impossible to do this beautiful art justice in description. Anyway enough going on about it. We hope you guys enjoy our coverage of She-Hulk number one and if you guys like what you hear you might even like what you see so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, marvels, and amazing green lawyers. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. Hi everyone, I'm Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. O-H Mega Sentinel. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike this rivalry between Titania and She-Hulk that's now turned into more of a fight club situation. All right, so where I dug my teeth into reading comics was sort of that, and I, I mean this unironically, but sort of that progressive sub-mainstream Marvel Golden Age of like that tsunami era and the Juan Bobillo She-Hulk era and that's like Mystique with Brian K. Vaughn. That's Runaways with Brian K. Vaughn. Oh, that's Mystique with Sean McKeever. And it's Sentinel with Sean McKeever. But it's a vibe, I guess, right? And it was really awesome because all the covers were by Joe Chen. And I really fucking loved comics at this moment. Like, there's something about this moment that's just like, color is brighter, food tastes better. It's sort of the opposite of the way Neil Gaiman describes the shadow of Baba Yaga. And like, it's... Such a palpably warm feeling when I see a She-Hulk cover, one one millionth as beautiful 
as the cover Jen Bartel graced us with. I I just don't even have words. And I hope that everybody is, is at least enamored of something in this world, the way that this book made me feel uh, about a warm zeitgeist in my life. Uh, I really liked her shoes and all of the attention to detail on like just these like minute aspects of the costume. I also love sneakers as like part of a superhero costume. I feel like that's really, it's, it's totally, it's a very modern thing. It's very fresh. The whole look is very fresh. Also, I love a turtleneck. Uh, what do we call that? Like a, that's uh, a leotard. leotard. Okay. A turtleneck leotard. That's a nice moment for Jennifer. Yeah. It's like, I, I love the turtleneck one piece vibe. I mm-hmm. like making anything sleeveless. So this just feels, it feels really good. It's like she said, who needs sleeves? I just need to cover the downstairs area. <laughs> and I have a fully functioning outfit. And I'm serious. I love it. I think this costume looks amazing. And she's waxed for the gods. I mean, come on. I don't know. I think the gamma just sort of takes care of hair where you don't uh, want Yeah, it. that's probably true. And otherwise, how do you explain how, you know, Alpha, Sigma, Beta, Gamma, Omega Man, Hulk has such a dearth of chest hair? True. I think it's I think it's mostly Alpha Hulk that's got the chest hair, right? Right. I also, lo- I also love that we get the shot of her in her lawyer outfit and the like the really nice gold jewelry in the corner here. You know, she's a professional mm-hmm. woman. Yeah, by utilizing the corner box and creating a context for it by using the scales of justice, you take the idea that She Hulk is just this imposing beauty. You know, to flash back a little bit to when Greg Horn and Greg Land were churning out shulky covers. There was definitely a vibe that she was, you know, Princess Cheesecake, McQueen Cheesecake. (laughs) And in so many instances, the translation of her beauty and physicality removed the intelligent factor. And I love your perspective on she's a businesswoman, if nothing else, if you don't know she's a lawyer. That upper left corner box really does a lot to express that identity. I always think that Jen Walters has a very, don't want to say homely style, but it's a style that feels comforting. She looks like the everyday modern working woman. And I think that's a consistent thing about her character design when she is Jen and not She-Hulk. She often looks as like this related woman who has a relatable job of being a lawyer because everybody's a lawyer and everybody could go to law school. Oh, so relatable. (laughs) And she is kind of the Elle Woods of the Marvelverse in the sense that she's an amazing lawyer and nobody really wants to stand up to her. Why this blood sample this time? Mm. Uh, she is so good in fact that even her boss states I only hired you specifically because I don't want to see you on the other side and if that doesn't speak as a testament to her lawyering ability I don't know what does besides being an actual great lawyer well if only she knew that Mallory Book is like one of those perfect fictional characters that I will like beat people up over how good she is I love her. I love that she stayed consistently in the She-Hulk lane. You know, she's not somebody that's getting overused in every book where we see all over the place. Yeah, because so frequently that sort of overutilization or even generic standard utilization can lead to sort of a misidentity of the character. One of the things that has definitely plagued She-Hulk is sort of the notion that she is savage, maybe. She's also like sensational, possibly spiritual, maybe. 
baby. You know, she's a character who is, because of the complexity of her history, you know, she's one of the last things that Stan Lee created for Marvel back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. She started out very me, She-Hulk, me smashy. And within two issues, she was progressed to the character we, you know, better know and better love. Over the years, her character has been entrusted to a number of incredible writers, some very notable writers include John Byrne, Dan Slott, Peter David, and most recently, Jason Aaron. Now, while Jason Aaron's trajectory for She-Hulk was certainly not the most popular, it wasn't his own doing. She-Hulk has been on a dangerously unsettled path since the fall of the Hulks some time ago. So we're definitely looking at a return to form. Now, I've been lucky enough to have an opportunity to go through and read a significant portion of Jen's history. Now, I want to know, generic question, what's everybody's relationship with Shulky? Specific bonus points question, do you Rolky and why not? I always knew who She-Hulk was, like just as a person who read Marvel comics, but when she has that moment in Disassembled was when I really started paying attention to her. And I had a friend who was working as an intern at Marvel at the time. And when the 2004 She-Hulk series launched, he told me like, this is really funny. It's really good. It's not like other stuff that you're reading because all I was reading was Xbooks. You have to read it. And I really like begged off on it for a long time. You know, he persisted that this, if I was going to read something else and like, if I was going to say I was really into comics, I had to start reading other stuff besides the X-Men and Grant Morrison. And so he said, read this, you'll really love it. And I did, in fact, really love it. I, I can't say that I do, Rolke. I'm surprised to hear that you weren't more of an Immortal Hulk fan, where she became better known as the Red Harpy and is now a mystical character who is imbued with some real bad teeth. <laughs> and I can't say that I don't like her it hasn't been a big avenue of interest for me it's definitely something i should uh take another look at though now jake what's your relationship with either of the ulkies i would love to know how you interact with their canon especially because getting to know your fandom is still pretty new for me and it's always exciting to get to experience someone through their fandom i'm gonna just lead with the rolky thing to start and just say i barely know who that is as a character i'm i'm not a big like <sighs> like hero family kind of like i don't like the batman family like as a, as a concept i don't like it's just it's it's too many names under one brand i i love all the wolverine people but i don't love that it's like a wolverine family so the whole thing since it's never been like my my main area of engagement it's never really been i've never i haven't really paid a lot of attention to the various hulks i first encountered she hulk in the fantastic four v x-men like 1980s book as a kid because i like was luckily enough to have a smorgasbord of all these comics from the 70s 80s and encountered a bunch in the 90s and she hulk is in that book and she's awesome like she's you know late uh staying up late at the law library you know doing her legal work she's in her power suit you know she's full green but there was something about her that still seemed like super accessible like she reminded me of a really cool aunt i feel like she's confidently self-possessed 
Yeah, my sense has always been that when she's in Jennifer mode, she could almost pass for any other person in the Marvel Universe. But when she steps into She-Hulk mode, she's She-Hulk, obviously. Uh, but then she is kind of negotiating this power through the, through her identity as Jennifer. Like, she's always Jennifer. I never, I've never really read anything where she hasn't, like, had access to her personality. And I've always really liked her personality temper, like, and how it tempers that strength. You know, because she's incredibly strong and she shows that strength constantly. But she's also, yeah self-possessed is a really yeah great way to put it and i love the role that she plays in that that four issue miniseries you know she's one of the powerhouses she does her thing she's great and then i encountered her a little bit later like running into comic books like 90s she hulk comics in the library and i had never seen a comic that was self-aware before and i i absolutely loved that i thought that was so it was just weird and interesting and i love that she like kept talking to the reader and kept talking to the writer and her editor and would constantly fight with them about what would happen and i think i i ended up seeing the last issue at some point when the book got canceled and how she like how she dealt with that and how everything kind of like came crashing down around them and would sometimes spot her in other books not doing that and be like well this is interesting in her own world she's like doing her own thing very very duck amuck i've seen how she intersects with like x stuff you know which is you know few and far between i appreciate that she's like a distinct kind of character she's not like a lot of other women in the avengers or a lot of other women in the marvel universe she's definitely got her feet in these two worlds Worlds. one that is very very much not related to superheroing and one that is very very related to it i just love where this this story picks up i love you talking about sort of the way she intersects with the marvel universe because i think something that goes underappreciated is while the hulk has about 1800 appearances altogether throughout the marvel universe's history she hulk has 1100 appearances she has almost as many as her cousin despite having a spottier appearance schedule due to not having her own title, despite appearing 20 years later, despite not having her own UK titles, you know, there really is a vast world in which Jen has her own unique internal workings. And I really appreciate you bringing up that there really are two She-Hulks, not just speaking generally that there's Jen and there's She-Hulk, but there's sort of a duality to the way she plays out in the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, Jonah, I know that this is your first proper shulky title. I know that you read her sort of bizarre death and rebirth cycle back in the pages of Empire and have had some spotty interaction with her here and there. But how did it feel sinking your teeth into hyper fashion, super smart, mega green Jen Walters? So I am a little bit familiar with She-Hulk in one of her runs that I read that I personally really enjoyed. There was a lot of great and interesting characterization that I was happy with and was really fascinated with how they treated this character that was so distinct and different from her cousin that I really appreciated that they, the direction they were taking her. But outside of that run, I know a lot of things that She-Hulk did. Like, I know she was on the Fantastic Four. I know that she was an Avenger for a little while. I know that she's a lawyer. And that's pretty much about it. She had a pretty non-existent role in Empire. Going into this, I was really looking forward to see, alright, what is modern She-Hulk look like? What is, what does she do? And the only way I can really describe it is that she just I say this kind of lovingly. She felt a little pathetic. Well, oh, I a, loved it. She's a brawny babe on a budget. And she did not budget time for your criticism. But no, I mean, I agree. There is definitely a sense of like, she's holding it together with some staples and duct tape. And I really believe in her. 
Oh, she's a millennial icon. She's one of those people who's like put in a ton of work, but can't like see the amount of work that she's put in and has nothing to show for it by her own admission. You know, I mean, I I think we will come to discover that she has a lot to show for it. And I think that's going to be a great journey. But, you know, when she lists off what she feels like she has to show for it, you get where she's coming from. We've all had this experience of being like, I am in my 30s. I feel like I have done a lot of stuff and I feel like I'm walking into something as though I have done nothing. You know, she's very much in that material mindset of like well i started out only having this one suit now i've got this apartment and these suits and like this is going to be great but i think you know the subtext is it's these people who she's encountering along the way these relationships that she's had that she's really going to find like oh that's where that's where all of my energy has been put that's where all my work has been going into it's been going into like this ongoing relationship with titania and this other lawyer and with you know jan van dyne and you know i guess jack of hearts but but really (laughs) so i feel like in my experience excitement about talking about this book i might have forgotten to mention that we're here to talk about she hulk number one published (laughs) in january of 2022 written by runaway's favorite rainbow rowell i wonder if i did that for the alliteration the artist is roje antonio colors by rico renzi vcs joe caramagna on letters standard covers by jen bartell and adam hughes with an incredible number of variants i am heartened to see rochelle rosenberg's name here i do wish perhaps with so many brilliant female artists working in Marvel, there could have maybe been a little bit more female-leaning art representation, maybe a little less male-leaning art representation, but it's certainly good to see Rainbow Rowell, a woman, writing this title and making sure that the voice of a modern feminist figure is being written consistently in mind with what women are looking for from a character such as that. And I think perhaps that's why the book on the second page passes the ultimate Bechdel test. And we know immediately that this is a book that is very concerned with keeping a tone, a tone of inner strength, a tone of kind of beating back the obstacles. Jonah, I love that you called her pathetic right off. Because I think there's different kinds of pathetic. And I am I know you weren't being like, you know, critical. You were saying like, she comes off kind of like, oh, but like, I loved this fight and the humanity it shows in a Hulk. Now, this is the second Hulk that you are connecting with here. I know you also have great affection for Braun. That's Amadeus Cho, right? So how did you feel about this initial setup, seeing these two women interact on the second page when we've read whole runs of books that can't pass this test? When I called her meek, that wasn't a dig. It's more so commentating on where her character is right now, where before she had she was a very cocky person and it got and it got her in a lot of trouble, especially during the run that I was reading where she was kind of having to do freelance law because she was just too cocky, literally wouldn't stop being shulk, even in the courtroom. And it got to a point where it led to her being kicked out of the Avengers mansion, kind of having to figure out her whole life. So it's a very similar situation. And it find it I find it interesting that at this point in her life and her career, she's lost that confidence. I personally really enjoy Titania. I think she's a very fun character. I don't particularly care for how she was introduced, but I do find her relationship with Crusher Creel interesting. Actually, funny enough, I think my favorite Mary story involves her in Marvel Pride. I love a big brawny woman. I love women when they have designs that go against typical designs. She's very, you know, she's bulky 
bulky. She's very huge. She's like a power lifter. It's really cool to have that design in a woman. And having this exchange was weird in the best way possible. And I, it just feels like it's the perfect catching up for people who don't know what these two characters are up to, to where their relationship is. Because they have a very interesting and cool rivalry. But them not having that in that moment, and it, less of being a rivalry and more of it being camaraderie, it feels really natural. And it feels like a really great evolution to their own characterizations. I even love that at the end of their fight, Mira's like, I can loan you a few bucks if you need. And it's just like, I, I appreciate that Mary isn't, is somebody who could be described and drawn masculine without having toxic masculine traits that it's just, just written as a man. Mary is a masculine woman. And I love that. I mean, I think they're frenemies in the best sense. They have a really complicated interpersonal history. There is a lot of on-again, off-again conflict. They have these, like, my understanding is that at various points in their relationship, they have fought, stopped fighting, and come to negotiation points. Mary has voluntarily gone back to jail after, like, getting her butt whooped. But yeah, it's a complicated relationship. It's really, but the thing that I love about it is that they come to, they come to terms. That they, I guess, advance the narrative somewhat. It's a very fun, playful dynamic. And it is really funny when mary's like are you okay (laughs) like you don't sound okay are you okay it's like uh when that mean person at work stops and looks at you is like what's wrong with you (laughs) they start a fight club come on like it's just it's perfect she hulk is coming off a big storyline in avengers and i was very curious to see how this book was going to deal with that marvel has taken an interesting tack lately where sometimes when they've got a great property that absolutely can stand on its own regardless of continuity they will sometimes wait a while to start referencing big like even recent events and sometimes they'll ignore them entirely they just won't come up if there's you know a way to do it that is legitimate world war, world war she hulk was for the character, uh, regardless of ramifications, a big story. And, you know, it was a it was big, massive. Yeah, it, it was a big feature for her. She has an incredibly heroic arc. The Winter Hulk was like one of the coolest fucking things. Like, I mean, it was it was complex and dramatic. And like a lot of Jason Aaron comics, it sometimes feels like there's a page or two missing from the middle. Yeah. But I completely agree with your assessment. It was honestly a really good story. I am obviously not the Aaron fan that you are. I think he does really great work. And sometimes, you know, you can look at an arc in more or less a vacuum just for the issues that it is. And it's really great. And this is absolutely one of those stories. Jen ends having done something very heroic and has a really great lawyer moment, which she caps off with Hulk smash. I was curious about if that would come into play. And I'll be honest, I was completely fine with the fact that it didn't, because again, it speaks to that fact that, you know, you can be a person with relative accomplishments who has done things who would be recognized by other people and not necessarily see that in yourself. I don't, is this a month later? Is this two weeks later? Whatever. Cut to this moment and she's not feeling like the hero that ended World War She-Hulk. And I get that and I, you know, relate to it. So, you know, to pivot from that into I'm going to playfully fight my enemy that hasn't done anything that requires my super heroics and we're going to establish a fight club just feels like, again, the kind of millennial surreality that we face daily. Yeah, you know what? After something as big as how are you going to top World War She-Hulk, I totally see her being like, okay, this is a familiar villain and it's someone that I know I can deal with. And by that, of course, I mean 
Mallory book. <laughs> and, you know, it, it all joking aside, it is also very of note that we spend a luscious 17 pages on the Titania fight. And then the Mallory book interaction is two pages. Yeah, I mean, it's simple. That's all it needs to be. And that's sort of like the beauty of this book. It like it really spends the time where the time needs to be spent. I want to see two women come together across a divide and share a moment of humanity that sort of suspends the idea of gender, suspends the idea of hero fighting villain. It's a moment of humanity in an age where I think we could all use a little bit more humanity. And it comes from a giant green monster lady. How, <laughs> how better can that be? And then, yeah, Mallory book is intentionally that severe yeah two pages does the trick you're absolutely right it really does they're negotiating Titania and She-Hulk are negotiating what their relationship is going to be as of now and that takes a minute Mallory is telling her this is it this is your tiny office we have nothing more to say to each other do the work this is such a good issue one, you know, as someone who's just not really like I did not read World War She-Hulk, so I don't really have any of that context. You know, I know enough about the character to know that like this is clearly a back to basics approach and I appreciate the like this is where she is with her superheroics. This is where she is with her professional career. This is where she is with some of her like most important relationships. And I imagine like if those other stories like the, the emotional resonance from those other stories will come in and flesh out in the context of this this story as it's unfolding but this is a really it's like a trustworthy issue one like i feel like i can jump on and have no problems without the context and i i really appreciate that because i do like this character and i want to know more about what's what's happening in her head i'm curious about what people's favorite panels were in this issue because there's some really gorgeous art here top to bottom the book is just sort of like a, a lush factory. One of the things that I think that She-Hulk books do really well is they play against cheesecake in a really beautiful way. I think digital page 23, where she has the fashion show and then throws herself on the giant purple couch. I think, I'm sorry, the giant purple bed. I think one of the things that that really highlights is in a world where She-Hulk is larger than life, she still kind of fits somewhere. And it's there's kind of like a, a metaphor. You could have maybe even done this whole issue in two pages for me. It could have been a nine panel grid page of everything before this and then this page. And I don't think it would have been anywhere near as effective. It wouldn't have been as powerful. It wouldn't have had those incredible moments of uh, dynamic relationship between women. It wouldn't have had so many of those great humor beats but you still could have told me that when jen comes home this is where she just wants to hide in the best that's the kind of storytelling that you can do in a page without any dialogue that really says god damn what a creative team I also really loved on digital page 21 where Jan kisses her on both cheeks. It's cute. Like the art, I, I mean, the art in this whole book is perfect, but it's this moment of connection and kindness. It reminds you what we always inevitably fall in love with, with Marvel characters, which is the relationships. These two are friends. This is her ride or die. This is the person who has an apartment waiting for her that isn't just available, but still has her stuff in it that offers to, you know, get her clothes that are going to work for her. Those two panels sum it up for me and they're adorable. And I just, it reminds me that one of the things I'm so excited about for this book in particular are the connections that She-Hulk has with all of the other characters in the Marvel Universe. 
Jake, I know you had posed the question, but I'd love to know what your favorite panels were or if there was any art that really popped off the page for you. I'd say the first panel of story, which honestly, Jonah, when you said like meek or p- pathetic, whatever, whichever word you use to describe, I could, I totally agree with your assessment because that's what she, I mean, she looks like she's really like her, the way she's hunched over, grappling her like notebook thing with both arms. Like, I think she's meant to look small. I mean, and then Titania calls her tiny, which is hilarious i love everything that that panel is is showing and telling me about jennifer in this moment where we're picking up and similarly uh, you know uh, nico you mentioned page 23 digital where she puts on the sun hat and then changes into she hulk and then falls on the bed with this just like absolutely chilled out look on her face like she's like here i am home also i love a big like big round bed moment it really brought me back to like the excalibur lighthouse with the big heart Bed. Stop it. No, you yeah. get my fandom. You come over here. Let's hug. That's yeah. It's I'd love a big Marvel, a big Marvel bed that looks like it can fit a lot more than two people. I also love your point that she looks so chilled out, because that is definitely like Hulk Nico on his third bowl happy. I really <laughs> I really am there for it. Well, and there's a subtext too, because earlier in the story, she talks about how she's not going to ruin her one suit. So now she's in this place with all of her clothes and she's like, you know what? Boom, it's gone. That suit's dead. Thanks, Janet. (laughs) Jonah, I know this is your first tour de vertigree, but how do you feel (laughs) about She-Hulk's sort of aesthetic what is your favorite panel was there anything about the art that surprised you because i gotta be honest with a few exceptions of a couple of stunt minis this is what a she hulk book looks like and it this is high quality at that so two of my favorite pages if you're following along digitally page nine where it's just it's the whole page is just she hulk hands on the hips it's like the opposite of the page of new york swallowing her up as tiny little jim yeah, this is this is big old She Hulk, and she uh she's taken up the page down to the complete arc of her shadow meeting where she bursts out of the horizon. It's such a spectacular way to draw your eye to a far back point, right? Like that's one of the subtle ways that these artists understand the way the human eye works and use it to make this art tell the story without words by having the arc of her shadow meet the horizon so far down the page and then having She-Hulk tower so far over it. It makes her seem even more immense because it puts a sense of dimension beneath her and sets her so far above it. It's an exquisite use of space on the page. Oh, 100%. And I also personally love the moment during their fight where it's a very anime-esque fight sequence, right? It's this moment where like She-Hulk catches the punch and then she punches back. It's just very exciting. I agree. I have a question that I want to pose to everyone. Pose and, it. and maybe it's a, maybe it's something that's been addressed in in universe. Maybe there's like a specific reason for it. But why isn't she? Why isn't Jennifer She Hulk all the time? It sort of varies, and every now and then they kind of reset it. It's a little bit because there's a contrast and a balance of personality. There's a contrast and a balance of body. She isn't always She Hulk because she doesn't 
always need She-Hulk. There's times the assertion of She-Hulk, while it doesn't dramatically change her personality on a super foundational level, it does sort of bring out a little bit more of a showboaty gen. Hmm. And so between that, and not that her strength isn't spectacular, but it does, at seven feet tall, limit her dexterity in small spaces. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of a balance to it. You know, um, it's, I'm like, I'm trying to be like, cause you just don't want to keep your dick hard all day. Like, it's <laughs> just like, at some point you're like, nah, you put it away. And like, that's kind of what I think it is here. But I love the question, especially because it does so genuinely tie to the central core of the, of the story. And it's definitely been something we've seen a number of times. Why in She-Hulk or out of She-Hulk? Something I think that's really funny is she very clearly chooses to be She-Hulk in a bathtub that then she kind of maybe doesn't quite fit in. So she's Mm. choosing to be She-Hulk in this moment. She's choosing to be too large for the tub. Now, I'll be honest, I am too big for my tub. So like, yeah, there's times I'm like, I'm a giant man. As I like lay in the bath. Um, <laughs> but like, it's also the the sort of magic of the fact that she's green as shit. And like, that's something I really love about comics with non-human characters or non-human color trait characters where a character is blue or green or red. There's something about the stranger in a common land sort of atmosphere. It's why Blink is to the day I die one of my all-time favorite characters visually and mm-hmm. personality-wise and character-wise and continuity-wise and everything should just be me writing Exiles for the rest of my life. But I think one of the things that really sort of lights up a comic for me is when colors clearly can't be human, but they make you think of something and the magic of the coloration uh, by the artistic team between the smoke plumes, which are oftentimes sort of inferred uh, inferred by the inker. So I'm not sure exactly where the division of work deserves to be credited here, but on page 24, everything about that color scheme of Jen in the bath between the subtlety of using more pinks and purples, like when she was laying on the bed, her top matched the pillows, right? There's a subtlety in the limited use of color that creates a really powerful value that transitions us down the page. There's that dot of yellow in the ducky. Then there's the bigger bit of yellow in the closer up image of the ducky. And then finally, crash in bright yellow. There's a color transition that brings us to alarm in a sense of serenity. And you could actually almost miss it over and over again because the transition of the green absorbs so much of the yellow. It's a really spectacular way. Once again, like I can't get over the art on this book. It's another really spectacular way that this entire creative team from the writer who put together the script to the art team came together to tell a narrative story through line and color that really takes my breath away as a She-Hulk fan and just as a fan of comics. I also think it's worth pointing out that especially when she is in a more standard superhero story, Jen is often flirting with a loss of control and with an inability to 
contain the Hulk within her. You were seeing it a little bit at the start of the World War Hulk run. And the moment that always sticks with me is when she loses it and disassembled and hulks out and Mm. can't control herself. I'll be interested to see if that ever comes into play here. There is a tension for Jen that's different for Bruce in that you do expect that she is going to just be a super strong person, that she is not going to hulk out. But there is a very real possibility that she will, and it can be used to great dramatic effect in a story. Well, and I think it's it's such an interesting commentary on the whole power fantasy of superheroes, too, when you have a character who, like, can edge into this role and, like, the consequences are kind of vague, but, or, like, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess vague is the right word, but, like, they can happen. Like, there's a, there's a probability, a probable chance that she could hulk out, but most of the time she's fine. Yeah, I really like characters who the idea of characters who go from like small to big like like captain marvel in dc like it's a really interesting play on the power fantasy when you know someone would or may like may rather be that big all the time but there are like there are consequences to being that way and not just physical ones i like the i like the idea of of there being emotional consequences to staying in that strong person role for too long yeah absolutely one of the things that i think really tells a powerful bit of the story here is kind of a a weird through line of everything everyone just said. But it also made my brain kind of think about the way in which the art still transitions to sort of a different place. Once the Jack of Hearts is reintroduced, the book completely changes from this glamorous, light, lovely thing to a dark, scary, harsh transition. And it's even down to that's Jen's hand sort of creepishly over Jack's heart on page 26. And clearly it's Jen, but there's sort of a ghoulishness to it, kind of a a Scooby-Doo villain kind of floating claw of it. And the idea of that, that loss of agency, as you were bringing up again, Jake, the idea that there is sort of a personality shift. She could have been small or she could have been big. She actually ultimately, I guess, needed to be big for this moment because otherwise, upon finding Jack, she would have either needed to transform in the moment, which would have made it have a very different feel, or it would have left her with limited agency in her human form, which would have made us feel very differently about the sequence. Now, Jonah, you know, in discussing this, how do you feel about the differences between Jen and She-Hulk and issue in? Please correct me if I'm wrong. Jen and She-Hulk, often until she became the savage She-Hulk, much more were one in the same person where Jen had a lot more control over this alter ego. It was just another persona that she put on for whenever she needed compared to Bruce for a lot of his comics where the Hulk was a separate entity from Bruce. So she was savage in her first two issues in 1978, and then she was not savage again until 2003. Since 2003, she has had an off-and-on relationship with savagery, but for the most (laughs) part, she's been sensational. Is she Savage She-Hulk during Empire? That's the term I would use because that's her moniker. That's her adjective. It's like, it doesn't matter if Doc Ock is doing anything. I refer to it as superior. It's just sort of the adjective that goes with that fucker. And now you're just stuck with it. Anything Thor does is kind of mighty. Even if it's fucking up, Thor fucked up mightily. And like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just Savage. You're good. (laughs) Um, You're correct insofar as she she maintains Jen Walters and 
when she's savage, unless it's really, really bad, she's not hulking out in that way where it's a different person that they could like potentially split into two and talk to each other. I appreciate that. So what you're telling me is sometimes Shrulky is the phoenix to Jen Walters as the phoenix is to its host. Yeah, that's a that's a metaphor I'm going to be thinking about a lot. And I can because you know what? It's almost like fourth wall comedy super strength kind of yeah yeah okay it's like if the phoenix had a tight five i'm interested to see if this title will tackle any form of self-identity slash alter persona with she-hulk and jen being two separate characters because right now it feels like they're the exact same character and that's i enjoy that but i'm excited to see where they're going to go with this story so the good news is it turns out nathan didn't have to wait very long for Jack of Hearts to show up somewhere significant that he would enjoy. So Nathan, my good friend, this gave you a Shulky appearance, a Janet appearance, a Titania appearance, and Jack of Hearts. So I don't know that there could have been a more perfect She-Hulk number one for Nathan. I could one-up you on that. We could have an appearance of Dazzler, which... Not even just because Nathan loves Dazzler, but there is actual merit to that time when Dazzler and She-Hulk fought, and then they became good friends, and then She-Hulk became a trucker. Everything about the original Dazzler run is a fever dream. I will keep pulling random things that happened, and people will be like, no, that possibly couldn't have happened. And I'll go, no, it did. It did. Well, speaking of things that did happen, I would love to get everyone's final thoughts on She-Hulk number one. I know nothing of Jack of Hearts. I know he was an Avenger who died. I like the name. I don't know if there's... I hope there's a whole, like, plethora of, like, superheroes named after the card suits. Do we have, like, a Queen of Hearts, Queen of Diamonds, you know, King of Hearts? I'm, you're going to make me keep naming them. Um, no, no. <laughs> they don't happen. They are not. Well, I feel like there should be a core, and it should be all of them like that. And there should be four for each suit and four for, you know, per Don't they have that in DC, I think? Let's say, I'm going to point you over to Batman. And uh, we'll 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 point we'll we'll watch the Batman Beyond and see a real cool version of it. Well, that works for me. TK, you brought up earlier, but I am very excited again to see how She-Hulk will interact with the rest of the Marvelverse because this appearance of Janet was really appreciative and really fun, especially after coming off of Darkhold. I really enjoyed this Janet. So I'm also excited to see more characters that Jen does know and has an established history with and how they're reacting to Jen's situation where she's kind of just down in the dumps. I would also love for her to interact with characters she's never seen before. Not to, you know, wish for my, have her own wish fulfillment, but what does Jen think of Emma and what does Emma think of Jen? Oh, well, the, Emma does not like Jennifer. Uh, as 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 uh, it came up during, oh, I think it was Avengers versus X Men, where Jennifer accidentally like shock shock smashes Glob Herman, and Emma is very angry at her for hurting a student. I'm just really excited to see where this goes. I mean, we love a first issue. There's nothing but potential. It's really exciting to have a woman writing She Hulk. It's really exciting that this book has sort of set a tone that this is not going to be all battles, all darkness. It's going to stay upbeat. When we do have fights, they're going to be funny fights. There is some gravity to this ending and to seeing Jack of Hearts. It's I, I keep referring back to Disassembled because it really is an image that stays in my mind of She-Hulk. And although she was not the person responsible for Jack of Hearts' death in any way, it the, that connection 
production to me feels like it's going to be important for this. And, you know, we end on a kind of, as you mentioned, Nico, a darker note, but I suspect this will move into levity pretty quickly. And I'm excited to see Jack back. I mean, he has not had a single appearance since something that I read to prepare for this Marvel Zombie Supreme in which he does not get other card people, but he does get a girlfriend named Jill, which I hated. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jack and Jill. Yeah. I love Rainbow Rowell. I read her Carry On series, which is a fantastic trilogy. Very queer. I really love the way she writes character relationships and like the emotional resonance between characters. I really liked that that was kind of the main, the main, like one of the main elements of this issue was Jennifer and her relationships, because I, I suspect that that's going to be pretty key going forward. I thought the art was absolutely gorgeous. Nico, everything you said about the color was spot on. I really, I also noticed how when she's fighting to Tanya, there's a lot of the, this great orange and green contrast too. It's a beautiful 17 pages. Yeah. I, I'm not usually a Hulk person, but this is a book that I want to follow because I think it's gorgeous and I love the writer and I love this characterization of She-Hulk. So I'm definitely excited to follow. Hey everybody, Nico here again. I am so thrilled to be part of the team that introduced Spider-Man to our show. Now, I don't foresee us necessarily covering every adventure of the webhead, but I myself have loved the bits of Spider-Man that I've covered with Nathan in the form of the King and Black Spider-Man stories, and I really love these Marvel Unlimited Infinity comics. It's really been something that we've enjoyed covering for you guys here on the show, and it's something that we enjoy reading our ourselves. Spine Tingling Spider-Man number one through eight was one of the most medium challenging sort of infinity comic style utilizing stories that Marvel's come out with for this app and down to the eighth issue has to give you instructions on how to read it. It was just such a great time. There's a play along song so you guys definitely have to check that out over on Marvel.com. I really felt that Spine Tingling Spider-Man represented a really important moment for kind of the potential of these Infinity Comics reaching their next stage, and I am so happy to be bringing it to you. Also, following that, series co-producer Nathan is going to start covering these amazing Infinity Comic primer pages, which were introduced when the Marvel Unlimited app relaunched in September. These pages give people an easy way to jump in reading these stories. We could not be more excited than to kick off the coverage of the Unlimited primers with Spider-Man himself. Also, of minor note, it's pretty cool that I got to put this episode out on my birthday. Today is my birthday and I really love the idea of in my own weird way spending my day with you guys. This show means a lot to me and I really love making it and our fans mean the world to us and we couldn't be more grateful. So thank you guys so much for enjoying another Marvel Fanfare Friday. As always, we make the show for you three times a week. It is Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So until next time, guys, enjoy these last two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Keep your lawyers devils or hulks, and we'll see you guys.
Hey everybody, welcome back to Access for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now, introducing wall-crawling Spidey coverage. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xNateXGrayX. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Hey everybody, I'm Tor. You can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SMTori. That's Tori with an I. And I'm Jonah. And you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience just like Petey did in this sleep dimension fighting not Freddy Krueger. And all of his neighbors going, you're going to get through us before you get to this guy. So I am so excited to have called together this group of people to officially launch what is technically our first ever, like, intentional Spider-Man coverage. Woo! Yeah, we have... Well, okay, hold on, wait. Are we talking, like, are you sure? Because we did have to cover that one Spider-Man issue. Well, so that's incidental Spider-Man coverage. (laughs) We've sort of been like, oh no, he got tangled up in our X-Web. But here today, right now, in this weird sleep space between reality, unreality and the Marvel Universe, we have been called together to cover Spine-Tingling Spider-Man 1 through 8, which are, of course, a delightful series of Infinity Comics available on Marvel Unlimited. I'm not sure why I use the word delightful considering the topic of conversation, but this is a fantastic horror kind of surrealist story by Saladin Ahmed and Juan Ferreira with letters by VC's Joe Sabino. I always love seeing VC come in Mm -hmm. on the letters. Not that I don't love Blambot's work, Blambot does incredible work but when vc does the unlimited comics it sort of makes it feel like marvel isn't drawing that line between them quite the same way they're sort of saying these are real to us because we're putting our you know our on staff letterers on and like that always lends a little bit of credibility of course these comics could not exist without the incredible work of the production team which is unique to these projects the marvel unlimited staff does an incredible job pulling these together here we have annie chang on production Tom Smith III as production manager, Lindsay Kohick on assistant editing. It's also of note that this is one of the only titles we cover where there is a posthumous credit that is awarded to the creators, mm. Spider-Man created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. It's one of the rare times we get to say one of those, so I'm really excited. I couldn't be more excited. All right, tell me, talk to me. How do you Spider-Man? I myself, probably Miguel O'Hara a little bit more, Mayday Parker the most. I, Ben Riley where attractive uh you know i i kind of vary my spideys i love some miles good beautiful amount of spidey tapestry in my world how about you guys so i actually fell in love with spider-man back in the day in the 90s during spider-man the animated series and actually maybe even a little bit before that when spider-man and his amazing friends would rerun and i have to say that i am a peter parker boy all the way he actually shaped exactly who my type is just saying (laughs) (laughs) yes your human boyfriend is also a spider (laughs) well he is more like uh closer to a miles morales s person but i yeah pretty much (laughs) 
What about you guys? I Spidey relatively infrequently. The amazing thing about Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man, is he is such a Marvel mainstay, so far beyond even somebody like Wolverine, that if you make every effort not to engage with Spider-Man, you will still know a lot about Spider-Man and encounter him very regularly. So I let Spider-Man come into my life as he will and exit just as regularly. My love for Spider-Man depends on a reading of him as a disaster bisexual and I will stick with that till my dying day. Yes. Him and Johnny Storm have things to deal with. Hey, you guys all know that my stance <laughs> on it is Peter and Matthew are jack-off buddies. There is no other... I will give you that because I uh, hard agree, but also that's all they are together. For me, it's definitely Petey and actually Wade. Oh, I definitely see that too. Definitely, Point being, definitely. Or Peter and Carol, to be honest with you, because I'm a fan of bisexuals. Peter Parker. I like that one as well. And honestly, I'm sorry, Peter and Ben. Um, I... Wait, the only... Ben, ben Riley. Okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, I'm there. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, I, as a comic reading child, was very into the Clone Saga. I can't tell you why, because I really am not into Spider-Man, but I got super into the Clone Saga. I always have a special place in my heart for Ben Riley, so I've really been eating these last few months. I am a boy who really loves the spiders, and I love all of the spiders. I love me some Peter. I like, I love Miles. I love Gwen. You sound Gwen. so dreamy about this. It's so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love Sil. I love Penny. I love Peter Porker. <laughs> yes, I've raised you right if you put Peter Porker on that list. I've done something right. I love Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman. I love Julia, Spider-Woman. Aranya. Aranya. There's a, a whole big old collection of spiders, and I really love them. Maddie Franklin. Let's keep doing this. I'm here. Okay, I will say Jessica and Aranya are huge faves for me too. To piggyback off of what TK said, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of uh, because I'm I'm gonna call myself a boomer. I'm a, I'm a vine boomer, and I had a vine. Some never mind. Mm-hmm. It's gonna take too long to explain. <laughs> I but, am um... not a vine boomer. <laughs> oh, back in the not. day of vine. Um... <laughs> I remember the uh, golden age of MGM vines back when they first introduced the streamies. You hear? Nobody can believe that they were getting new entertainment right to the phones. <laughs> so on the other side of things, I have very, 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 very little Spider-Man knowledge outside of the movies. And I even think I somehow skipped them in my Saturday morning cartoons. So my knowledge of Spider-Man is when he shows up in other things and just like the general like Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. So like I only really know him through the movies. I'm staring at his face in this comic going, is this when they decided to like graft Tom Holland's face onto the comics? Like what, you know, that kind of thing. So for me, coming to Spider-Man is always something that is a little bit like I know who it is, but I'm always very surprised by how much I enjoy Spider-Man now. Now, I know we listed very specific characters that hold the name Spider-Man, but I'm curious, does Mary Jane count? Because she is actually my favorite. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
she's not only a very important character integral to Peter's story, but isn't she also Spinnerat? She's a spider. She is one of my absolute favorite characters, and I was there for her even through her Models Inc. days. Wow. Somehow, in what in vaguely watching Spider-Man, maybe on Saturday morning cartoons before X-Men came on, somehow Felicia Hardy and Black Cat really imprinted on me. Which I mean, every day I find a new a new female character that I obviously had a huge crush on as a kid, and my little brain just went, no, this is just how all girls feel about other female characters. Yes, Tori! Gotta love Felicia. Oh, God, yes. She's so hot. Oh, my God. I love how varied everyone's experience on Spider-Man is, because one of the key things about Spider-Man is so much like a Wolverine or a Batman or a Superman. He's kind of come to be the all-purpose hero that can be redesigned and re-silhouetted, and I specifically mention male heroes because there is really a different set of rules on the ways in which a female hero has to be every version of the female hero, right? One of the things that Spider-Man, though, manages to do is kind of toe the line of an unusual amount of vulnerability. And I think the fact that we grew up with Peter, we saw him be an awkward, skinny teenager before he became this real hot dude who is packing Mm -hmm. uh, a fair amount of uh, hot underwear action. Good job. And I found myself thinking about the nature of vulnerability and accessibility of that idea. And I think one of the things that really holds true is because we can imagine Peter as a child. There is something about connecting him to the idea of nightmares that is more inherently frightening than, say, connecting Logan to nightmares, which is a bit more horrific. And I wonder how that played out into how we viewed this story. How did you guys feel about the fact that so much of this story preyed on the idea of childhood fears, whether it was the art or the dynamic composition of the Sleep Stealers narrative? I have to say that I spent this entire series going, my God, this art, my God. So beautiful. It's so As someone who does a lot of her comics reading through sites like Webtoons that are an endless scroll, I was blown away by the use of the format. The moment when it said, you know, lock your screens, this stuff is going to turn around. And for me, it was just beautiful and amazing and a fantastic use of the thing. And I think it really reached out to this idea of childhood like confusion and everything's turning on its head and everything is it felt like stuff was reaching out of the screen towards you the body horror of the teeth on the villain everything was just very there was parts of me that was like is this childhood horror but then when the neighbors their belief in spider-man and their belief in what he does started to feel a little bit like believing in tinkerbell makes things happen it started to feel like superhero are kind of the new fairies in their magical powers and so that felt very fairy tale like very very childhood for me so I agree that that idea is definitely in there so yeah Nico as you were saying we have known Spider-Man since he was a child we also know him as the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man he is such a down to earth and you know a real life hero he is not often well I mean at this point he does everything but what 
what we associate him with isn't the magical. It isn't a lot of realms of extreme in any way. And so when he encounters nightmares, it's an interesting juxtaposition because we don't pull from a lot of like, oh, all of the horrible things that I've seen are coming back to haunt me. It is this person that could be any one of your friends encountering the like the concept of nightmare and something that is so opposite to who he is that it puts you on edge in a different way than like you know you use the example of wolverine with him we would be going on a journey through all of the horrors that he experienced and whatever the creature was wouldn't really scare him because he's always seen something so much more horrible and everything he interacts with is so much more horrible but for peter it's always going to be terrifying based on the fact that this is the friendly neighborhood spider-man up against something that is completely foreign to who he is definitely it had a great great horror vibe i do agree with what i really loved the scary factor of this villain with no physical substance to them Mm. as a threat i i thought that that really kind of upped the ante for him and really played with just how high the stakes were i really felt like the fear the creep aspect from the story just to echo on to what tori said that last issue i'm so glad she said that because i was raving about it in the room beforehand Mm-hmm. That was so well done. I think it was the best done version of one of these comics I've seen so far. This would do really well if this was like, if this entire comic was animated. Like if this was like a 10 minute animation or like a 20 minute animation. You know what? A 10 minute animation with that like watercolory effect would be so beautiful for this. Animators, how practical is that? Uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> what makes this story so fascinating is that this is a villain that I don't think I've seen Peter fight in the way that he normally would tackle fighting a villain. This is much different than anybody who you think is your standard fanfare rival for one Mr. Peter Parker, that having him go through these trials and uh, this really mysterious entity kind of torture and toy with him was really um, I think adds to the narrative and what the vibe this comic was trying to give off to us, that I think it was done so beautifully and successfully that uh, the choice of this spooky monster that looks like it has even has a spider on its own chest so uh new spider confirmed uh who knows now i love that you guys keep talking about the villains of this story because i do believe they are pretty central to the narrative there's kind of a handful of villains here and it plays out in multiple parts number one on a very surface read there's the kind of pawn villain of Smythe, and yeah fine he's fine you know and if you grew up with the animated show you know you can imagine animated kingpin being like smythe build me the spider slayers and you know being like all cranky about it now you know we imagine vincent d'onofrio and you know we we do basically mr Martino eye from daria and that's how you get to vincent d'onofrio as kingpin right so you know i feel like one of the things about these villains is beyond the basic of smythe there's the sort of surreal of sleep stealer so then there's paul and paul sort of represents the most hyper mundane thing Peter can come up against. Basically anybody from his neighborhood. And yet, in this eight issues we still have one fourth villain. And that's actually the song. And I love Mm. that. Number one, I love the fucking song. Oh my gosh. 
there's an official song on the website. What? what? Also, because this is from so long ago, I was like, there's no way if I go to marvel.com that I'm going to find this thing. So I was just like, I was like, uh, spine tingling Spider-Man song, google.com. And it like popped right up and was like, do you have two and a half minutes? Here's something creepy. One of the things I love is that they actually did go out of their way to create a song for this. Yes. And that really enhances the experience. Instead of it being sort of just this surreal moment and sort of a suspension of, you know, a moment in Spider-Man's life, it becomes an immersive experience. There's a song to listen to. You can read along. In fact, your tablet even transforms with the story and rotates as if the world itself is spinning around with you. There really is something so exciting about stepping that far into Peter's world. Now, Tori, I know you had a chance to listen to it as well. How did you feel about the composition they created as somebody with a musical theater background? I was so fascinated by how it came together. It had that creepy lullaby feel to it, but it also like it built in a really creepy way. And I think I, I keep talking about webtoons because I'm obsessed, but there there's a function on there too, where the author can include an audio piece that can either play through the whole thing or kick in for certain moments and then kick out once they've scrolled past it and I think that this immersive experience is just so perfect for for something that is just trying something new and I think because Nico was talking me through a little bit about what these comics mean and what they started off as and for me to learn that this was like a trial of an idea I think to add to add the music to add the keep keep your tablet still because we're about to turn on our heads I think that it makes it such a fast fascinating, almost theatrical, performative aspect to it. Like it's immersive in the way that immersive theater is immersive, where the audience member is is part of it and is is pushing the is pushing the momentum forward. And I think that the music drags you in and can really gives you the sense of of creep and of you couldn't sleep either if this was constantly playing. That's a good point. It comes off as very Freddy Krueger, like the song that is in the movies. One, two, One, Freddy's coming for you. Two, yep. Freddy's <laughs> coming for you. Three, so, yeah. Four. And like you hear that song and it's exactly that, Tori. You feel that dread, you know, when you were watching the movies. That trope gets used so often. I mean, it's used on Buffy. It's used in, in so many shows. I mean, yes, it's, hush. It's, the, it's the genesis of why every single trailer that comes out now has a, has a uh, uh, I forget what the term is, but it's where it's slowed down and sad and it sounds like Lana Del Rey singing it. Um, oh. All of a sudden you just hear... When they dance, they call me Macarena. <laughs> oh, God, no. They say, yeah. like, the bass comes in. Boom. Oh, boom. I think I think you're missing the fifth villain, Nico, the city. So... <laughs> Wait, was uh, sorry. Speaking of villainy, how about when when Spider Man becomes a villain when he when he terrorizes some old lady on the street? I mean, ultimately in this story, dis, you know, despite there being a tangible villain, there's a degree to which like this idea of Peter's job as Spider Man being so much for him and causing him so many sleepless nights and coming at him from science, from magic or horror, you know, it is a burden 
burden that he has to bear that weighs on him and that tires him out so. And I think the book does a really good job of creating tangible representations for of that. But what we're seeing ultimately is the many parts of his life that conspire to make it a difficult one. Yes, this is definitely pressure like a drip, drip, drip. <laughs> to be honest, I come to this a lot when I talk about when Matt Murdock gets to have fun and kick back and throw a party. Getting to watch Peter Parker do the friendly neighborhood part of his Spider-Man where he's doing, food doing deliveries. the deliveries. I like, I almost cried because yes. I was so happy to see him be happy doing these cute little things and everyone looks so happy to see him and I'm their food. I'm so glad you said that. I literally messaged Nico as I was reading it saying that I really love watching Spidey do friendly neighborhood things. Like, mm. it just makes me so happy. And it's a huge reason why I love him so much because he loves his community so, so much. Yes. And, you know, that had been one of your questions for me, Tori, when I was like, hey, you you know let's read this thing and you were like yeah why and I was like, uh, you know because I, I said more why now yeah, no totally you were you were very fair about it and i was like you know just because infinity comics and you were like infinity cool and i was like yeah and you were like so where does this go and i was like i haven't read it so um i'm gonna guess it just kind of goes anywhere yeah i think it's just kind of like spider-man to be spider-man and i think that actually works to its strengths here number one i don't know about you guys but i'm pretty sure aunt may was like 33 in this issue i think she's younger than peter here i'm not sure what was going on there aunt may was was... full on mrs doubtfire sally fields is what she was giving me she was uh looking real fine for a gilf and i was like really here for it uh, because I thought the art on this book, again, was stunning top to bottom. I thought the writing was charming top to bottom. But, you know, I definitely did notice that she was looking hella, hella fresh. Okay, I... Are we reading the same issue because... (laughs) All I'm envisioning, maybe it's just because I have the specific image in my head of, like, the the vapors coming out of her mouth, like, swallowing him whole. <laughs> just, I'm just not really sure, sure if I could get behind that. She's got a glow about her that you can only find if you're, you know, sexing in the city in, two, in 2021. Like... <laughs> That's what she's giving us. She's not giving us Golden Girls old lady anymore. She's giving us Carrie Bradshaw. I can see what you're saying because I literally just tried to get to one of the panels and she does look she does look kind of fresh, even with bags under her eyes. Yeah, because some of us just look tired. We're Greek. It happens. <laughs> and Italian. It's just all Mediterranean. It's too much sun. Too much sun. Jonah, one of the things I love about your Spider-Man fandom is you come with a healthy dose of love for the character without a whole lot of concern for the trappings of the continuity at time. For instance, I don't think you were coming into this and being like, oh boy, I hope everything's venomized. I'm really looking forward to the Church of Carnage. Uh, And oh, someone please bring me a hobgoblin. I have to imagine you came to this excited about Spidey. How did it feel dialing into a story where the actual specifics have very little to do with an overarching canon, but rather create a context for kind of general Peter the Spider-Man? Whenever I'm reading anything Spider-Man, I go into it like, oh boy, who are they going to add this time? Because the most interesting wild and double-edged sword of peter parker is that peter parker has been a character for decades at this point and there are so many characters that have touched his history and that he has touched himself uh that it really is 
giant... before, yeah. <laughs> a giant grab bag of characters you can pull that would make sense for Peter Parker to interact with. And it's just, who, who's the flavor of the month? Who do you want to use? Who hasn't been seen in a while? So going into this, I didn't know anything what to expect. I didn't know anything about this going into this. And I was like, oh, cool. Spider-Man work. So I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's the blue and red one. But you never know what you're going to get in that you never really know who's going to show up in a Spider-Man issue because you never know where Spider-Man's going to show up next. So it's like, who knows? It can literally be anybody. So I was very excited to see who they were going to pair for this, which had this creepy vibe. And I think there, I think there's a handful of already established characters that they probably could have used. But I think it was more effective to use this no-name entity that kind of has like a spider symbol on them that I was like, ooh, they look like a reaper. Like, this is, this is fascinating. What is this thing? Why is it so gross? And why does it want my sleep? I like my sleep. Can we like, Peter Parker teaches, is a, is a college teacher. He needs sleep. Do we, does he not know, does the, this entity not know how annoying some college students can be? I was an annoying college student. Well, I love that you've pivoted to the entity because the entity really does steal the show in so many ways, visually in an issue full of stunning looks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I saw this thing in my sleep, it'd keep me up at night too. Whether it's the visage of death with its sort of sickly, fingery kind of <sighs> kind of look, or it's the kind of ghostly, spirity form that hovers, nothing quite compares to that fucking tooth monster thing. Like, you know, whenever anybody's like, what's so sexy about the Corinthian? I'm like, his eyes are teeth. And everybody's oh, like, but what's so sexy about the Corinthian? I'm like, his eyes are teeth right this guy sort of takes that and it's kind of like adds some hammerhead shark to it so loses me somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. right but there is something so powerful about the iconography of this horrifying monster there's that almost um element of a cancer to that it's almost tumorous yeah very body horror very the thing yes yeah And I thought that combined with sort of the magic of everybody becomes these big, strong, powerful warriors, and then they all become horrifying, fucking venomized monsters. And, you know, ultimately, there is a negotiation of it. But I really thought that the things that made this story pop the most were the dreamscapey elements, were the uh, terrifying parts that really raised the bar on the kind of surrealist image that I think would have trouble in a has-to-sell 30 35,000 every month has mm-hmm. to be 22 pages, has to fit in exactly the same shape, has to be five parts. I don't know that this would have thrived on the monthly market like that. Yeah, I would say that with the first issue being stunning, it does nothing essentially. Like it introduces the idea of the dreamscape, it introduces the idea of the song, but it doesn't do anything. There is no rock'em sock'em, there is no It's really a real sexy great... trailer. It's a real sexy trailer. And I think one of the things about it, it takes so long to get to that toothy maw that is that horror. For me, I 100% agree that this does not work, would not have worked as a as a trade. But I do think that when you're allowed to have it, you're allowed to binge it all together and you're allowed to scroll through it on your own. I think you can kind of get the best of it. And I think you get more of the Americanized horror of it because there's there's an old saying that the difference. 
difference between European horror and American horror is that European horror is the wolves are at your door and American horror is it's already in the house. American horror is you, you can't lock the door. You can't shoot it down. It's already here. It's already in. What are you going to do about it? And I think that the V entity is so wonderfully horrific in that way. And those teeth and that maw and the, the way that it can turn all of those neighbors against him with as much of a thought as what he put into them is just so, so great. TK, my question for you is sort of, I guess, what about this story in particular, if, you know, anything did, worked best for you in terms of the horror element? I know that you said that you kind of come to Spider-Man as he crosses your path generally, and I definitely put this in your path, right? And that's something we've been doing with this show. You know, you've really been stretching out and reading these crazy new things uh, as part of our coverage. And we're talking a lot about the way the horror elements really elevate elevated spider-man and yet spider-man elevated the horror elements as somebody who comes to this not so much for the spidey of it but rather the comics discourse were there elements of the horror that particularly clicked here for me it was the thing i was talking about earlier which is that as somebody who does not read a lot of spider-man but who still knows everything there is to know about spider-man because it he is so omnipresent a story like this the horror really distilled what makes life so difficult for peter and what challenges he's facing why you might find him compelling as a character not just in the setup you know in seeing him as the friendly neighborhood spider-man doing food deliveries but in sort of taking each next step to figure out what's going on and the the horror ratchets up each time he does so but again it introduces elements that are always part of spidey canon you know we start off with a sci-fi villain with the robots and the robots lead us to Smythe and Smythe leads us to the entity creeping out of its of his mouth and you know we get to Paul who melts into the entity these are all sort of parts of what makes every Spider-Man story great and so the horror is a way to give us all of those things in a really concentrated form in in a story that is not part of a monthly it's not something that you have to question whether or not you need to have read anything before or after if you read these eight issues you'll get a really good idea of who spider-man is and what his world is and i think it is the elements of horror that reflect that in a way that's new and different for somebody who knows a lot about spider-man but you know i can conceive of a lot of different spider-man stories so if you really want to hook me you've got to find a way to tell me a spider-man story that is different than anything i've seen before and this was a really good way to do it because you don't see him facing horror very often I agree. Peter Parker isn't the character in a horror movie who's usually going to survive. He seems like an early out, kind of. <laughs> and so seeing him deal with these challenges of horror, surviving his own basically horror movie of, all right, I've identified, I, I keep hearing this song. I've vaguely identified this threat, but there's this other threat and I'm just tired and like my reactions aren't good. It's, oh no, I'm now in this dream world and I keep hearing this song and I'm so lost. I know we keep co comparing this to Freddy Krueger, but then the part where all of his neighbors like don their armor and like they think about what they would look like as like a badass hero 
I was like Nightmare on Elm Street three Dream Warriors, where they're where they're all yes. when they're battling Freddy, and they all have like their different things that they were like really into. And that's how they try to fight Freddy. Um, didn't didn't you know? And the best for them, for all of them as well. But at least here, everybody survived, so that's nice. I want to just dial into something really interesting because as we're talking, I'm like, yeah, you know, I love that we're seeing how this elevated Spidey to horror. But yeah, I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, you know, he actually has done body horror before. Oh when yeah, man, Spider. Yep. And he actually does have a number of horror-based villains like Morbius or Carnage. So I think what's really sort of the the element here that makes this so unique is that instead of the horror being sort of a fighty fight visceral horror, it's kind of a psychic horror. It's kind of a a place we would maybe more expect to see a Jean Grey or an Emma Frost. And I think it is preying upon the vulnerability that we project onto a boy we saw as a young teenager learning to become a man. In many ways, the narrative here is sort of passive for Peter. He's a victim and other people have to help him. And he wins with the power of love and friendship. And the bad guy is a song. There's a lot of things here that don't code male. They don't necessarily code female either, but there's a genderless quality to the interpretation. And one of the things that that is so powerful for is it allows anyone to step into the story. Spider-Man is meant to be an every hero. And I think I could see Ghost Spider having been the lead in this. I could see Miles having been the lead in this. And the fact that it is through a mad hot fucking version of Peter, this is mm-hmm. like Philomena's underwear models levels of gorgeous, you know, out of control, right? <laughs> And, you know, the other thing, you know, Tori, early on, I, and it was just something I don't want to forget to have commented on. You had said that this is so old. There's no way that, you know, you'll be able to find the MP3. Really crazy point. While this started coming out before Halloween, the finale only came out three days ago as of this recording. So it started October 26th, but didn't conclude until February 1st, 2022. So, huh. You know, there's just a lot of levels to this that I think it's really amazing. It kind of started as a horror story for Halloween, but they clearly let it run and become its own thing. Its name is kind of Halloween-y, but it definitely stands on its own in the sort of Marvel adjectival vernacular. Ultimately, how do you guys feel about the accessibility of this story for somebody stepping into an either Spider-Man narrative or a Peter Parker narrative? And if they announced Spine-Chingling Spider-Man Volume 2, would you guys pick it up? You know, on Marvel Unlimited for free. This is a question that I was actually going to ask you, Nico, because to me, this is a really great uh, series to say to someone, hey, I know you love horror. I know you love spooky, scary movies. This is a way to tweet, to twitch you into liking Spider-Man. And then you can like work them into the rest of the MCU and like have good times. So like for me, as someone who doesn't really do the Spider-Man very much, it was a great idea. And I would happily watch more body horror endless scroll oh yeah the endless scroll actually does make a huge deal like i mean i could not stop scrolling yes like that was part of the magic like i get so enraptured i just can't stop it's exciting it was exciting it was it was a fast read which isn't a bad thing and uh, like right up to that eighth issue 
when it just it turns the whole thing on its head by having you turn the whole thing like it was so interactive and fun i actually think this was an absolutely great idea and a fantastic way to bring in new readers i am so astounded by how beautifully the writer and artist like wove the story together like they're they're both of their mediums just intertwining so flawlessly that's why i love that they're credited as storytellers with yes. no delineation even mm-hmm. though it is saladin ahmed on writing and juan ferreira on art tori i think you nailed it in saying this would be a great thing to go to a horror person and say want to know about spider-man this will get you there i would say that for any new reader while this isn't a standard spider-man story this tells you everything you need to know about who spider-man is mm-hmm. i would happily read another one of these on Marvel. Marvel Unlimited. And I think if I knew that they were taking him in a really specific, these are Peter Parker horror stories, this would even be something that I would consider like purchasing individual issues of. Yeah, I really agree. I think this is, you know, every now and then they try and launch a Spider-Man market title. When he was an Avenger, they launched Avenging Spider-Man. When Peter David said, it's my turn, they gave him Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. You know, they sort of, and now they gave him Spider-Man Return to the 1980s Whip Whip <laughs> Book Book or whatever it's called. And, you know, that's a thing. That, oh, they gave my precious Nick Bradshaw Spidey like five years ago where he told classic Spider-Man stories. There's a market for it. And I really agree with you. Like if they said to me, Spider-Man horror title, I'd buy it. The genre of it would compel me. And also I think the idea of this is not, it's not out of continuity, but this is not going to be one of those, like you need to know about the clone saga. You need to know every time he's had the symbiote on, you need to know when he lost Mary Jane and when he got her back, etc. It's going to really focus on a specific type of story that can be relatively contained. I think that would be a big draw for me as well. Yeah. I think the only thing that they mentioned that is like barely glanced on this one, he says uncle Ben once. And if you don't know who uncle Ben, is like you can figure out like Aunt May's probably married but you haven't seen him so you don't know like what his deal is but I think everybody who comes to Spider-Man is aware Uncle Ben is dead like yes oh my god spoilers they- spoiled spoiled <laughs> This I mean, is, just is he like alive right now? Chicago. So <laughs> what I think is great about this story is that you can kind of just slot this in anywhere you want in terms of continuity. Because as long as you have Aunt May around, you could you could have this be any at any point in any time. Like truly, because it is so self-isolated in that way that you can you can just put it wherever you want. And you know, comic timelines are already already are already tricky. So you could just pick this up and be like, oh, I mean, this, this fits now. It could be now. Would I read a second one? Yes. But I would love a different entity for horror, and I would love a different spider. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Hey everyone, it's Nathan. You can find me online and Twitter at DazzlerAOA. It's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And today I'm here to talk about the amazing Spider-Man Infinity Comic Primer. So this is a really, really fun retelling of the amazing Spider-Man's origin. And I have to say, this is a great use of the Infinity Comic format. Our writer for this little issue is Robbie Thompson. Penciler is Mark Bagley. Inger, John Dell. Colorist, Stan Brown. BC. Joe Carmagna is our letterer. Production by Annie Cheng. 
production manager Tim Smith and assistant editor Kathleen Wisnecki. And I've got to say, this is really such a fun, fun, concise retelling of Peter Parker's origin. Starts off, he's like, my name's Peter Parker. And as you can see, I wasn't exactly what you'd call popular in high school. In fairness, I'm not really popular now, but what can you do? That's such a great line into the inside of Spider-Man. He's always been the every person. He's been the hero that is not even deep, but the hero that's within all of us. So just to start off with that, it's such a great line. He shows us kind of like a clip show of his origin where he's bitten by the radioactive spider. And I have to say, the art in this is fucking phenomenal. It shows him training as a wrestler to get his money. And it shows the police officer chasing after the cat burglar who kills his uncle with that classic pre-Spider-Man Spider-Man line, not my problem, pal. And after his Uncle Ben dies, we get that great, great, iconic line. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. With a, such a tragic scene right there, with May and Peter grieving over Ben's grave. You know, I think Ben Parker might be the only one in comics that hasn't been resurrected after some point. Used to make the joke that it was Bucky, Ben Parker, and Cypher but the other two they're back with ben parker's death being such a prominent part of spider-man's life it would really change flip the script to have him somehow resurrected and it has peter going and so in his honor i became the amazing spider-man and he tries to keep things simple with this amazing page of him fighting the sinister six we've got vulture doc ock craven that sexy monster that craven is Sandman with his amazing sand forms. Electro, also another hottie. And Mysterio, why does he look so sexy in that page panel? I don't know, but there he is looking sexy as fuck. And you can see how that's worked for me so far. And it shows this amazing splash page of his amazing spider friends. Although there's no Firestar and Iceman. But we get all of the Spider-Verse players. Ben Riley. We get... Spider-Man 2099, we get Peter Porker, we get Ghost Spider, Spider-Gwen, however you want to call her, Jessica Drew, Silk, and just a melange of these amazing Spider-Folk who have been inspired by Peter Parker. And this goes to say, I'll say this much, it's never boring with this amazing scene of, you know, iconic Peter Parker swinging through New York City off of the skyscrapers. I hope his web always catches because that would be a tragic ending. And he goes, and the best part, unlike high school, I'm not alone in this fight. Now, I would say this is the one panel that doesn't work as well for me in the Infinity Comics form where it goes from the side with Peter Parker to Spider-Man, showing, you know, some of his greatest allies like May and Mary Jane and Flash and Human Torch and Iron Man and Daredevil. And really the sad, iconic, really cusp of Peter Parker's character, no matter what the odds, for my uncle forever. So he is in this fight to bring justice to it and justice that he let happen. He is always going to be the character who made a mistake and is forever trying to make up for it. Peter Parker is, in essence, all of us trying to make up for our mistakes every day in each and every way. He's super smart, but he can't get his 
shit together. He is got this amazing power set, but he can't get his shit together to be taken seriously by the majority of the superheroes in Marvel 616. You know, he has some strong allies. He has some strong friends. He has, you know, Black Cat. He has Mary Jane. He has these really complicated love interests that, you know, probably way hotter than he is. But hey, he's working it. He's he's doing what he's got to do. And this is, in essence, everything that Spider-Man is, everything that he can be. It shows his humble beginnings and his current status as a great hero. Now, obviously, we've got some new changes going on in Amazing Spider-Man, where Ben Riley has taken on the mantle of Spider-Man again. Peter Parker's thankfully out of his coma, but, you know, he's gonna always come back and do his thing, and he's always gonna have this great supporting cast of characters who love him at his best and at his worst, and that's all that any of us can ever hope for. You know, there's not many of us are going to go out there and become an Iron Man, but a lot of us can go out there and be a Spider-Man, do the best that we can, you know, take responsibility for what we can, and change what's in our power to change. Ah, this is just such a great use of this format to retell this origin in such a fresh modern take, you know, with some great art, but it still all pays homage to the classic art styles that came before. And it really shows you how everything is full circle. You know, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, X-Men, The Avengers, these are all the origins of the Marvel Comics universe as we know it now. Obviously, it goes back to Namor, Captain America, and the original Human Torch, but this modern era was really ushered in by these select teams and these select characters. And it's really nice to get a little bit of historical acknowledgement, but not overplaying and overstating its importance. I, I can't wait to see what other uses of this format they're going to do. And I've been loving the value added addition that these Infinity Comics have been adding to my Marvel Unlimited subscription. And I hope y'all are enjoying it as well and the coverage that we've been doing of these wonderful issues.